0: Truly, we're in a race to make value work.
1: Welcome to season one of the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value.
2: Welcome to Race to Value. This week, we have Dr. Mark Gwen, President and Executive Medical Director of both UNC Health Alliance and UNC Senior Alliance, which is one of 34 Medicare Next Generation ACOs. This is a very successful, clinically integrated network that covers 250,000 lives in the state of North Carolina. Daniel, I really enjoyed our conversation today with Dr. Gwen.
0: Eric, I couldn't agree more. Mark is a great leader for the ACO and the CIN. They had an outstanding performance result in the Blue Premier Program, recently saved $17.5 million in that program for 140,000 Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina members. Mark is a great leader for the ACO and the CIN. I mean, when you think about the outstanding performance that they had in the Blue Premier Program, This is their partnership with Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina. They've got 140,000 lives in this product, and they saved $17.5 and achieved 100% quality score. I mean, it's truly incredible what they've done. And to hear it from Mark as he talks about their approach to quality, how they address behavioral health, and how important SDOH is to them, it's really remarkable. And I think our listeners are in for a treat.
2: UNC Health Alliance is truly an example of, of a physician-led, clinically integrated network leading the way in value-based care and within a state that is a, a national example of what can be done when payers and providers collaborate meaningfully to improve outcomes. I am so excited for our listeners today and listening to Dr. Mark Gwen as he shares his journey in this race to value. Dr. Mark Quinn, President and Executive Medical Director of UNC Health Alliance. Thank you for joining us today in this race to value. It's a pleasure to be with you, Eric. Mark, I thought a great place for us to begin our conversation today would be to discuss the state of value-based care in North Carolina. The state is gaining a national reputation as a hotbed for value-based care transformation. North Carolina seems like an unlikely laboratory for healthcare reform It refused to expand Medicaid coverage under the ACA. It ranks in the bottom third among states in measures of overall health. At the same time, North Carolinians are also experiencing stagnant or worsening population mortality rates and substantial health disparities. 15% of residents live below the poverty line and over 1 million North Carolinians are uninsured. Healthcare costs are rising crowding out other state budget priorities and limiting wage increases. Despite clear evidence, avoidable medical costs have proven difficult to eliminate, but the state has embarked on one of the country's most ambitious efforts to transform how healthcare is defined and paid for. Mark McClellan, the co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, who was also the head of Medicare and Medicaid during the Bush administration, has publicly stated that no state is moving as far and as fast as North Carolina. Last year, he even wrote an article in Health Affairs North Carolina, the new frontier for healthcare transformation, in which he talked about the convergence of public and private sector healthcare leadership in North Carolina, creating an unprecedented accelerated shift in how healthcare is paid for in the state and the way social risk factors are incorporated in healthcare payment and delivery systems. Over the next five years, The state is poised to make an estimated 70% or more of healthcare payments through alternative payment models. No other state is on track to reform payments so much and so fast with the goal of improving population health and care delivery while lowering healthcare spending. So, Mark, for our listeners out there who haven't been keeping up with the value-based care transformation in North Carolina, can you provide your perspective on how the state is approaching this race to value also, what lessons can be learned from other states that are looking to initiate a similar type of transformation effort?
1: Thank you, Eric. I think that's a really important and, and good question. What's, what's really interesting is what you described in terms of the, the state of health in North Carolina is actually almost a perfect starting point because there is significant room for improvement across the state and across multiple different health outcome measures that, that you just uh, alluded to. And it's interesting that you described uh, Mark's work and and publication in in health affairs last year. We often quote that work as a driving force uh, for us to really continue uh, our good work together uh, and accelerate it as quickly as possible. I think fundamentally North Carolina is going through a transition because there are provider organizations, providers across the state who have committed to improving some of those health outcomes that you mentioned, and have been building some of the infrastructure that's necessary to do that hard work over the past five to 10 years. So we've created a pretty good substrate for our payer partners across market segments, across the commercial market, uh, Medicare, and now Medicaid, that we're starting to see the scale that we need to really catalyze this kind of work. As you know, it's very difficult to do value-based work when 1% or 2% of your patients are covered under these types of alternative payment models. When we start to get to the tipping point of 30 35 40%, then we can really capitalize on our investments, get the attention of our providers who are altruistically engaged in this kind of work to begin with, but now we can really give them the support to be successful. As you know, managed Medicaid uh, is coming to North Carolina, uh, was set to initiate last year, and will be initiating in July of 2021. So now we really are seeing value-based payment models across market segments. So joining payers who are forward-thinking, have backgrounds in policy, payment methods, and an understanding of the true diverse barriers to care across North Carolina really partnering leaders that are like-minded with our provider leaders who are uh, focused on this work. It's really, it's that partnership, I think, that's catalyzing what we're seeing in North Carolina.
0: Mark, I wanna congratulate you on the recent news that UNC Health Alliance had an outstanding performance result in the Blue Premier Program. UNC Health Alliance reduced the cost of care for 140,000 Blue Cross North Carolina members and earned 17.5 million in quality and shared savings payments. Your CIN also achieved a 100% quality score. This is truly a remarkable success story, especially with this being your first performance year.
1: Thank you, Daniel. Really are proud of our, our teams and the providers across our network for some really targeted good work.
0: So Mark, the ACLC really wants to tell your story and help other provider organizations across the country replicate your success in value-based care. And I'm excited to explore the success story with you. I'd like to start by setting the stage with some additional background for our listeners on Blue Cross North Carolina. Eric mentioned our co-founder of the ACLC, Dr. Mark McClellan, and he's been telling us that no other payer in the country is moving as far and as fast towards value-based payment as Blue Cross North Carolina. Indeed, the goal of Blue Cross North Carolina is really bold. They wanted half of their 3.9 million members to get primary care from providers who are in shared risk agreements by the end of this year 2020. And they recently announced that they've already surpassed this goal with 52% of new Blue Cross North Carolina members in value-based programs. They've got another goal, by the end of 2023, they're committed to having all customers covered under Blue Premier's value-based care contracts. Mark, this is a really big deal. Blue Cross is the state's largest insurer, and as I understand, the payer mix for primary care physicians in North Carolina with a combination of Blue Cross North Carolina and Medicare is about 75% of practice revenue. So beyond the success of UNC Health Alliance in lowering total cost of care, for this population. Blue Cross North Carolina announced that they saved 153 million with Blue Premier last year and they distributed 85 million to program provider partners in performance related payments. So could you walk us through this first year of UNC Health Alliance's participation in the Blue Premier program and And how did you achieve such resounding success? And also as a follow-up, can you discuss a little bit how Blue Cross North Carolina is approaching its collaboration with your CIN? You know, what can the national payer community learn from Blue Cross North Carolina about how to partner with providers and transform care delivery?
1: Daniel, this has been a truly enjoyable journey uh, with Blue Cross North Carolina over the past two years. I'll start with the year before our performance year. We really spent almost a year working directly with Blue Cross leadership around the Blue Premier model itself. I think we're really fortunate that the leadership Uh, Blue Cross North Carolina, their entire team really had some deep experience coming out of CMMI and that leadership partnering with folks and leaders at Blue Cross North Carolina that have deep roots and relationships with us at UNC and UNC Health Alliance and other uh, providers across the state. So bringing the understanding of of how value-based payment models function, some of the principles behind them, quite honestly, some of the math on how to really be transparent about calculating benchmarks and and trend and other key aspects of alternative payment models. That combination really allowed us to partner well with Blue Cross. You know, they came with a construct that was fairly well flushed out for Blue Premier, but they also were willing to sit down uh, and discuss some of the core principles, some of the key aspects of the model, and it evolved over that first uh, year pre-performance. So we felt really confident that we understood the model really well, that the uh, the math behind benchmarking was sound and solid and principle based. There were no surprises. And often uh, we find in whether it's total cost of care benchmarking or MLR calculations, um, MLR target calculations, that it, it can often be a bit confusing as to how. Payers end up with the models that they end up with. So transparency was really important. We had many discussions about the principles of making quality targets achievable. We had discussions about how to invest in integrated network infrastructure that allows us to provide the population-based care that we know is important. Uh, We had many discussions about data transfer and uh, data transparency. We really looked toward mutually beneficial ways to reduce our administrative costs, and how to blend that into these types of models. There There's a, quite a few discussions and, and collaborations on the model itself. So starting there, we knew that we had a trusted partner, and I think that's absolutely critical. From a, a UNC Health Alliance standpoint, we approached the beginning of our first performance year in Blue Premier. One, knowing which patients were attributed to the model. So the prospective attribution was really important to us. We have a robust infrastructure around quality improvement, specifically clinical quality improvement that we've built over the past decade. And then we have several broad improvement collaboratives among our primary care practices that are rooted in the principles of quality improvement, Lean Six Sigma principles, and the model for improvement. Uh, And we uh, are, in essence, a learning organization. So after deciding with Blue Cross what the quality outcomes were important, which ones were important, we really pivoted our um, internal infrastructure to really focus on some of those outcomes. That includes appropriate patient outreach, provider education, facilitating uh, improvement efforts on the ground in practices, uh, making our uh, EMR adjustments to really support the work. So we really felt confident that we'd be able to achieve high levels of clinical quality outcomes. We're very pleased uh, with the, the ultimate result of 100% quality. That is hard work, and it it's both altruistic work from our providers, but also an acceptance of some central teams and mechanisms to do good outreach uh, efforts across across the state. We understood the populations that uh, were covered under Blue Premier and some of the key drivers of uh, cost and health outcomes within those populations and understood that they're different than our Medicare population and different uh, from our Medicaid population and then started to risk stratify the population, identify which patient cohorts were like each other and, and quite honestly applying the right resources for patients and for our providers to start to look at utilization patterns. We've been focusing on reducing unnecessary emergency department utilization, unnecessary hospitalizations, um, unwarranted variation in care for the past several years. Then we applied those principles to this population and and our providers as well. And all of that is underscored by good data and analytics um, and good data sharing across the network. So the core principles of, of population management, we really pivoted toward um, a larger uh, population. Uh, And all of that combined, I think, has been uh, important for our success in the first year.
2: Mark, I just wanted to echo Daniel's comments and congratulating you in this most recent success with the Blue Premier Program. That's an outstanding result, and it's just the beginning of UNC's Health Alliance success story in improving care outcomes for the population it serves. I'd like to continue our conversation on this topic of payer provider collaboration and tie it to COVID-19. Primary care is particularly compromised in the ongoing pandemic crisis. PCPs are uniquely vulnerable to the adverse economic effects of this COVID-19 pandemic since most of their revenue still comes from in-person visits which have plummeted since March amid widespread stay-at-home orders and fears about in-office virus transmission. The pain has been particularly acute for PCPs not backed financially by health systems, private equity, or other entities. In North Carolina, 40% of primary care physicians own their own practices, and those independents were already on razor-thin margins after years of reimbursement cuts, unfavorable payment structures, and expensive EHR and tech implementations. You add a pandemic to the mix, and I can only imagine how worried many primary care physicians were in the state during these early months of the COVID-19 outbreak, wondering how are they going to have enough cash on hand to stay open as the pandemic continues to surge? In late June, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina announced their Accelerate to Value initiative, which is a plan to shore up independent primary care practices in the state and help them move into value-based payment arrangements. As I understand, they are going to make lump sum payments to participating primary care practices in 2020 and 2021 to help them weather the pandemic. Those payments would be based on 2019 revenue and then begin in September. There are a few strings attached. The primary care practices must attest to stay open, remain independent, and commit to joining Blue Cross's value-based care program by 2021. Starting in 2022, the practices would receive capitated payments to care for their patients instead of being paid by fee-for-service. Can you provide our listeners with perspective on this new Accelerate to Value program and how it's being embraced by the independent primary care community? What impact do you see this having on the UNC Health Alliance in the next few years as these primary care physicians move into capitation?
1: You know, Eric, we're, we're grateful, quite honestly, um, that Blue Cross uh, North Carolina really stepped into this space, given the real threat to our uh, especially smaller primary care practices uh, across the state. Early on uh, in, in this pandemic, we, meaning UNC Health Alliance, partnered with Blue Cross for prepayment of uh, shared savings for this year. So we had a good sense of what our 2019 Blue Premier performance would be. Um, And we worked with Blue Cross to generate a prepayment of that quality incentive and shared savings and distributed close to $5.5 million uh, across our network uh, to practices, primarily to help them weather the first couple months of the COVID storm. Uh, And they were incredibly grateful. And we were grateful to Blue Cross for working through that with us. Another couple of lessons we've learned Many of our independent practices within, within the Health Alliance Network turned to us uh, as an organization and, and to UNC Health as, a, as the statewide healthcare system for other types of guidance through the COVID pandemic, whether that was the appropriate testing, novel treatment strategies, supply chain. We helped organize uh, PPE for many of our practices. Um, really grateful to other clinically integrated networks across the state that did the exact same thing for independent practices that were aligned to them. As a community, as a provider community, and as an integrated network community, we really stepped up uh, to partner with our independent providers. And and just as a state, when I take a step back, I'm really proud of of us as a state and and how we've managed through this. Blue Cross specifically, their Accelerate to Value program, I think uh, has real merits. Providing some uh, much-needed cash flow now, uh, I think, is really reasonable. As you mentioned, many practices saw upwards of 50 and to 60% decrease in, in volume in April and May, uh, some of which uh, they've regained, whether it's in in-person visits or telemedicine and, and virtual care platforms, as, as you know elsewhere, ha- have really taken hold in North Carolina. We've helped some practices do that as has the the State Medical Society and others. Uh, So there's a real movement into virtual care, which I think is uh, a long time coming. Most of the practices in our network uh, are really looking to the Accelerate to Value program favorably because they uh, have aligned with us as a Blue Premier organization. They're eligible already, which is beneficial. And many practices uh, are looking at capitation a couple of years from now, pretty favorably. Now, we have a pretty wide breadth of experience of, of the providers across the independent network. Some uh, have experienced capitation in the past and, and are hesitant, understandably, but many practices are ready uh, to start taking on more risk. Uh, and quite honestly, we as an integrated network want our network to take on more risk. And we see this as a really good opportunity to start to do that and to prepare for that payment model over the next couple of years. We've started doing that work, uh, as we've talked about already, uh, and there's more work to do to be able to manage that risk well. But overall, this is a favorable move and, and uh, a good partnership with Blue Cross.
0: Mark, it sounds like it's working really well, and it's. I would echo that and say it's a great partnership that you have with Blue Cross. And, and Mark, you recently made an announcement that UNC Health Alliance will distribute 80% of the 17.5 million from the Blue Premier earnings to the networks physicians hospital partners and other healthcare professionals and the remaining 20% will be reinvested back into the organization's infrastructure and support things like patient needs and technology enhancements and it looks like the new the investment in new services would include medical transportation enhanced case management in-home tel- or telehealth services from physicians dietitians social workers or nurses and additional investments would be made in support for the network's practices like clinical quality coaching, analytics and and other technology to support interoperability. As a CIN executive, can you explain how you approach your capital investment strategy? How do you balance the capital allocation needs with the equally important, maybe more important need to put money into the hands of the provider community? Daniel, I think that's also a really
1: important and good question. And you're you're correct. We we distribute 80% of uh, quality incentives and, and shared savings, not just from Blue Premier, but across all of our contracts. And, and that's our, our shared savings distribution policy as a network. And our governing board has worked through this policy over the past couple of years. We think it's the right thing to do that supporting practices and providers, primary care providers, specifically is just critically important to help facilitate uh, this shift to value. We approach our own capital investment in a couple of different ways. We invest in data and analytics and, and really think that that's a core foundational element of doing value work so that we can be transparent about data, find good opportunities. And more recently, we're moving into Uh, looking across our populations for opportunities where we're seeing disparate outcomes uh, among different populations and really trying to look at at our data uh, through the lens of of health equity and finding opportunities. So investing in platforms that allow us to ingest data, analyze it, and visualize data well that allows it to be actionable is is a core element. As you mentioned, we're investing in patient and provider-facing services around Um, Intensive case management, which has been a a, a real foundational element for our population health services. The more that we understand patient needs and and find creative solutions and help our providers identify needs at the point of care and then rely on us to help wrap services around them and their patients, uh, the better off we'll be. And that includes clinical nutrition and licensed uh, clinical social workers. Uh, and others, and that's a that's a, a service that we've built that has been quite effective. And it, it, when we look at reductions in utilization patterns and the additional benefits uh, that address social drivers of, of health, uh, it's been an effective strategy. Um, we invest in provider engagement, uh, and that includes teams of highly qualified nurses and and others who have a background uh, in quality improvement and meet regularly with our providers. And and in many of our employed practices, we have coaches that are embedded in the practices that help not just with data review and and identifying patients at risk, but also work with providers on daily workflow, how to use the EMR well, how to find uh, areas of efficiency in daily life and in daily workflow that allow for more time than to focus on population management. So it all really is is tied together. We have invested in our financial infrastructure and uh, the team that we have that that deeply understands value-based contracts, alternative payment models, the details of medical cost trend nationally and regionally and what factors into that uh, really have allowed us to now proactively look at alternative payment model opportunities, whether it's uh, from Medicare, CMS, CMMI, our commercial payer partners or others, that can really allow us to build the right portfolio that we can distribute risk across contracts in a more proactive manner uh, is really important. So uh, we've invested in all of those foundational elements of the organization, uh, which we think is really important.
2: Mark, according to MHA's State of Mental Health in America report, North Carolina has an overall ranking of 35 among states in the U.S. with regard to mental health. One in five adults in North Carolina have a mental illness with a national average of over one in six. And these behavioral health issues include depression, anxiety, ADHD, schizophrenia, as well as substance abuse disorders. Mental health issues in our country are concerning. They are strongly linked to risk and progression of serious physical conditions such as diabetes, stroke, heart disease, and cancer, and the healthcare costs of a patient with a chronic health condition and a behavioral health disorder are two to three times more than a chronically ill patient without a behavioral health disorder. The issue of behavioral health is especially compounded with the need to socially isolate for the sake of public health, which has negative impact on loneliness, especially in older adults. As a primary care physician, I'm sure you're accustomed to seeing most behavioral health treatment and provided in the primary care setting, often without access to specialists. I'd like to explore with you how we can better integrate behavioral and mental health into primary care for more holistic patient-centered care. Better integration of primary care in behavioral health services can improve outcomes, prevent costly ER visits. And the research has shown that increasing access to outpatient behavioral health care can lead to nine to 17% savings in total medical costs. We've been thinking a great deal about behavioral health integration as a driver of health value and the ACLC will soon be launching a committee on this topic. Can you provide your perspective on behavioral health integration and discuss how UNC Health Alliance is partnering with Blue Cross North Carolina and other payers on this issue? Also, how are you addressing behavioral health within UNC Senior Alliance, your Medicare ACO?
1: Thanks, Eric. And and I'm, I'm really happy to hear that ACLC is launching an initiative in this area. It's absolutely critical. All of the statistics that you just mentioned are real. As you mentioned, as a primary care physician and specifically a family physician practicing for almost 20 years now, what most of us know is that behavioral health issues are actually more pronounced than what our data tells us. We don't capture family dysfunction, for example. We don't capture threats of violence and and the impact that has on health outcomes. The role of of behavioral health, social factors, and family um, and community factors is really really profound and incredibly important for us to pay attention to. We've approached this in a few different ways over the years. We ascribe to an integrated behavioral health approach overall, and that can be uh, operationalized in, in a few different ways. What we also know is we don't have enough psychiatrists and other behavioral health providers in North Carolina to care for all the patients that have severe illness. And so part of the strategy is pairing our psychiatry colleagues and specialists, um, our specialized uh, behavioral health providers with our primary care providers across the state to enhance care and primary care and uh, utilize psychiatric services in a more focused way. So I'll describe a couple of different ways we've approached that uh, over the past several years. One is embedding behavioral health providers in primary care. Uh, And we have uh, utilized licensed clinical social workers to do this kind of work um, at the point of care. And that can be anywhere from point of care evaluation for depression or anxiety, all the way through facilitating crisis management, if and when that's necessary. But still, that's not enough uh, to manage uh, the demand. We have uh, used and partnered with our psychiatrists to work with both primary care uh, around um, escalating uh, medication management for anxiety and depression, to do case reviews with both primary care providers and uh, LCSWs and our clinical psychologists to focus on high-risk cases uh, and also educate and enhance our primary care services around behavioral health. And that's been really quite effective. What we've also utilized to really pretty good outcomes uh, are data and registries. And I remember, you know, many years ago, I used to tell residents, medical residents, be careful what questions you ask because you have to deal with the answers. So as we started screening for depression and anxiety, we started finding a lot more patients uh, who were suffering. And then we had to build the services to be able to manage um, escalating depression, and then severe depression. So we're at a state now where uh, we have registries for patients that have anxiety and depression, and we can do more proactive outreach, whether a medication was just adjusted, we can follow up and, and see if that uh, what the effects of that were. Patients that we haven't seen in two or three months, we have teams that do outreach calls to check on patients to be sure that they're still doing okay. So we can start to really identify some of the triggers in patients' lives that lead to worsening outcomes uh, and start to head that off more proactively. So having a population-based approach to behavioral health paired with an integrated behavioral health philosophy, and we've ascribed to the impact model uh, out of uh, University of Washington for for quite a few years now, that's really pretty effective. That doesn't necessarily address severe mental illness or substance use disorder and, and other behavioral health conditions. Through uh, UNC Senior Alliance, we've we've done a couple of other different things. We have a cohort of patients that are duly eligible uh, that have uh, psychiatric diagnoses of severe mental illness, and we started looking at that population as a population. We knew who the patients were that had the diagnosis, uh, and we started talking with the psychiatrists in our network who could then start to identify patients that have fallen out of care and. Partnering with the ACT teams across the state and other services that are readily available uh, but sometimes difficult for patients to access uh, became a strategy that we, that we piloted a few years ago to moderate success. Um, we started remote uh, access to clinical social workers also uh, among our senior population. Uh, as a pilot uh, a couple of years ago in our rural counties, uh, we took advantage of the, the telemedicine uh, waiver through our next gen ACO contract. And we're actually pleasantly surprised at how much our seniors were willing to access that service remotely and talk to a therapist uh, through a video conference. Really, it was interesting. There was actually really good uptake. And that's a strategy that can certainly be, be scaled. We've partnered with Blue Cross more recently with a, a platform for access to behavioral health providers called Quartet. Um, And this is a a new entrant into the market that provides uh, both proactive identifications of patients at risk for behavioral health um, outcomes or poor outcomes paired with a referral uh, system that primary care providers can access uh, a large statewide network of behavioral health specialists and professionals for either in-person visits or virtual visits. So it's a new way to look at patient uh, access to behavioral health providers and, quite honestly, primary care access to uh, behavioral health specialists across a a broad network. And Blue Cross has also now added some um, quality incentives around outcomes for independent behavioral health providers across the state. So it's really comparing part of a new payment model to a population and facilitating access to the right service. And it's something that we're we're really interested in partnering with and have done some good pilot work with them. Uh, It's a critically important issue that we need to address across our populations. We've also done some interesting work uh, looking at substance uh, use uh, disorder and specifically medical management, MAT, uh, across populations and have done some significant work Linking both pain management providers as well as primary care providers and substance use specialists um, around uh, MAT therapy, training more providers across our network to provide this service um, and making it more accessible. Uh, And in North Carolina, that's a really important issue, especially around opiate use disorder for us. Um, So we've tried to implement different initiatives across both different populations and across the network Um, and in some new and innovative ways to address this problem. It is incredibly important for us to do well.
0: Mark, it's great listening to your description of of all the important work that you're doing. And I wanna focus in a little bit more on UNC Senior Alliance, your next generation ACO that you were talking about. This Medicare ACO, is a sister company to UNC Health Alliance, and, and you lead both organizations as president and executive medical director. Currently UNC Senior Alliance is in its fourth year I think participating in the next gen ACO model and it is one of only four academic health system based accountable care organizations that participate in the next gen model the highest risk alternative payment model under CMS. I'm really pleased to see that UNC Senior Alliance ranks number 1 nationally in clinical quality. You've talked about how important clinical quality is to you among the 34 pay for performance next-gen ACOs based on the 2018 performance year results. And I wanna say at the time of this interview, we can't uh, reveal the 2019 results because they're still under embargo with CMS. But back in June, CMMI announced that the next-gen ACO model will get a one-year extension. It was supposed to be sunset after December in lieu of the direct contracting model. And then CMMI also announced it'll change the methodology this year Used to determine savings and losses for the next gen ACO program in response to COVID 19. So, CMMI will be reducing 2020 downside risk by decreasing shared losses by the proportion of months of the public health emergency, among other modifications. And so, my question for you is, Mark, can you provide an overview of where UNC Senior Alliance is, the ACO, right now in terms of deciding how to proceed with the Medicare ACO programming? Do you think direct contracting will be the path forward? Do you think you'll continue with the extension of next-gen? And I'm curious to know, as mentioned, uh, even though they're uh, under embargo, what can you tell us about your 2019 results? And then what do you think is happening with your current performance in this performance year, given all the changes that you've seen? And and what are you predicting for your 2020 performance? And and I'm going to throw in one more question here, which is, you know Medicare Advantage. What role is that going to be playing in in the coming years for UNC Senior Alliance?
1: Daniel, we we have really appreciated the the next generation ACO model. What's really interesting is that contract that model was our first entry into any ACO work back in 2017, which was our first performance year and. As I've said that nationally in different venues, I always get raised eyebrows <laughs> that our first entry into, into the ACO world was the next-gen um, model uh, because, uh, because of first-dollar risk. And in retrospect, it was actually a really good decision for us. That year catalyzed um, our work in value, our ability to engage uh, providers across our network uh, in value-based work and, and our hospitals now. And when I look back, that was a real inflection point, not just for UNC Health Alliance, but for UNC to health as a healthcare system across the state. So, uh, overall, has been an, a really very good experience for us, and we'll continue to advocate for extension of the program for as long um, as is feasible. And quite honestly, I think the, the, the outcomes support extending this model for many more years, not just the next uh, calendar year 2021, and we'll continue to advocate for that. So our, our progression and, and evolution over the last couple of years has been pretty significant. You know, we our financial performance in the first year was worse than our total cost of care benchmark, and not unexpectedly, we, we took that as an investment year uh, and a year of learning. Um, our second year, uh, we saw some small shared savings uh, in 2018, and uh, coming into 2019, and, and I will respect the, uh, the embargo uh, to be sure, but we will see significant uh, shared savings and uh, likely equally high clinical quality outcomes. So what we're starting to see uh, across populations, across our network, is persistently high clinical quality across populations and market reductions in total cost of care compared to benchmarks. And, and that's that's reassuring that we're on, on the right track. We've taken advantage of aspects of the model that we really think improve patient outcomes, which we think are foundational elements and have contributed significantly to improving care for patients. The waivers around three-day sniff uh, waiver has been important. We've taken advantage of that significantly. I mentioned a little bit earlier about some of the telemedicine work we've done. Um, and we started really looking at transportation as a key driver of uh, health outcomes and uh, developed a transportation program that identified patients, particularly in our rural counties, who were socially isolated, had limited social networks, um, and not only just provided transportation to clinical services, but started to uh, wrap other services around patients to really start to address social isolation, which is, along with behavioral health, a key contributor to poor health outcomes. And that really allowed us to start to understand the population better and what some of the key drivers were, again, particularly in our rural counties. We have a much deeper understanding of the data and analytic needs to manage a network and uh, to help providers identify and manage patients perhaps differently. We've been able to identify key areas, even within our hospitals, uh, where care can be delivered differently. Um, and have been able to make the argument that providing care differently, redesigning care to improve clinical quality and decrease total cost of care are actually two sides of the same coin. Both of those often lead to better health outcomes. Uh, and that's been an argument uh, that we've seen bear out recently. So we're starting to see reductions in total cost of care across the care continuum, uh, not just in ambulatory care, but also in our hospitals and now progressively in our skilled nursing facility network with whom we're doing much more significant work. It's targeted work. The model has allowed us to really focus um, on a population differently, catalyze our our transformation to value across our system in a way that we likely wouldn't have been able to do before. And quite honestly, the threat of of risk and and payback to CMS (laughs) was a needed incentive to engage lots of our, our, not only our providers, but our healthcare system leaders as well. So we see the future for UNC Senior Alliance. We'll continue to participate in Medicare ACO models. We're very interested in the direct contracting uh, model. There are aspects that we think are really favorable and can also catalyze our journey to value-based care and, and getting closer to quote premium dollar. The capitation is something we're, we're interested in and uh, it's difficult to administer capitation for just one population, as we described a little earlier. So. Pairing direct contracting with a Blue Premier model that is starting to look toward capitation is really quite attractive. The quality models of of direct contracting are interesting and new, and we're excited to start to explore that as well. We are also looking at Medicare uh, Shared Savings Plan models uh, to see the future of of our network. What we've realized is we are one ACO, we're a statewide ACO, and in reality, We're really five different ACOs across the state, and that's simply because one county and one geographic area has different drivers of health than another. Um, So we're also starting to look statewide at perhaps different ACO models under our larger umbrella um, and targeting the interventions that are really geared toward local uh, drivers of health. We've partnered with Medicare Advantage plans for quite some time now. Uh, Most of our contracts and partnerships have been around pay for performance. And we're now actively working with our payer partners around Medicare Advantage ACO models. Really, the the financial model is important. Um, Aligning the, the clinical quality approach is important, not just for a single partner, but across multiple different payer partners. And quite honestly, mutual investment in some of the social drivers of health is becoming more important to us. And Several of our Medicare Advantage partners are are interested in investing in solutions for food insecurity, for example, for transportation, for identifying uh, elders who are socially isolated and designing solutions that are helpful there. There are some technological solutions that can help, as well as in-person, on-the-ground partnerships with community agencies. And so we're really looking to our Medicare Advantage partners, not just for financial relationships, but for real deep engagement in communities and and addressing the true drivers of of health outcomes. And those are the partners that we're going to really preferentially work with.
2: Mark, you have extensive experience leading high-value, clinically integrated networks, Clinical integration really seems to be the most important and greatest challenge of our industry. The New England Journal of Medicine found that the average Medicare patient saw a median of two PCPs and five specialist physicians per year, and that's the median. As it is estimated that up to 75% of healthcare expenditures are consumed in the care of chronic conditions, and the care for those individuals tends to be fragmented across multiple providers and specialties, clinical integration certainly provides a solid foundation for health value because it can enhance communication between providers and constrain the resulting excessive costs from uncoordinated care. In your career, how have you seen CINs leading in the transition to value-based payment by improving care coordination quality and efficiency across a patient's continuum of care? Also, I've noticed that UNC Health Alliance self-identifies as a physician-led CIN that unites independent and UNC-employed providers. How are you able to get the best of both worlds where you're entirely physician-led, but you also have the clinical integration that's made possible through UNC Health Alliance's affiliation with UNC Healthcare, a large health system with multiple hospitals?
1: You know the, the core principle of clinical uh, integration and a clinically integrated network is about coordinating care. I, I think the real value uh, of a clinically integrated network um, is almost an umbrella across multiple communities, multiple providers, to really take the ten thousand foot view of of how a patient is experiencing the care they're receiving, um, and perhaps starting to really connect the dots as to where the patient's journey of care can break down. And that's built on access to to data, um, access to uh, multiple different providers uh, across the care continuum, whether it's ambulatory care, hospital care, or post-acute care, and starting to make connections. And and fundamentally, that's what clinical integration is. I often talk about the, the value of a clinically integrated network in clinical integration, data integration, and financial integration, um, and aligning financial incentives so that we can all do the right thing, that we all as physicians know is the right thing, and try and make it the easy thing to do. Um, So fundamentally, that's the role of a clinically integrated network, and and in my experience, it can be really effective. I'll give you a, a quick example. In one of our rural counties, we saw that there was really high emergency department utilization in that county. Um, And you can approach that problem in lots of different ways. But what we did was we really identified about 150 patients that were contributing to uh, that utilization pattern pretty significantly. And the most common clinical condition was COPD across those patients. So very interestingly, the hospital was paying readmission penalties for pneumonia, which often can be related to COPD. The local health department had a tobacco cessation program that was underutilized. Our local primary care practices uh, had difficulty with access, uh, and particularly same-day access. Um, and there was a, a an EMS, a county-based EMS system that was interested in starting to do some community paramedicine work. So we brought all of those different providers across the continuum to the table and said, what can we do differently in this county around these patients? Um, and it was really fascinating to watch the real creative ideas that came out from starting to engage with tobacco cessation, creating same-day access, um, having a, one of our clinical pharmacists start to teach patients more directly how to use their inhalers. The emergency department team and their care managers started creating care plans for these patients when they um, unfortunately did come back to the emergency department. Discharge planning was different from the hospital. Uh, and a community paramedicine program developed that uh, met patients in their homes, either post-discharge or then on a, in an ongoing way, just to address any developing concerns. So it was really interesting. That's coordinated care. And what we saw was within six months, there was about a 40% decrease in emergency department visits for those patients. That's really powerful and scalable. And all we really did was identify some of the key barriers, bring the right providers to the table, share data, communicate, and collaboratively problem solve um, with very straightforward, basic solutions. That's doable. And that's, the, that's a, in my opinion, a really good example of what an integrated network can do directly for patients and providers. And, and the feedback that we're getting from providers is this is the kind of care that I want to provide. I want to identify key barriers, wrap services around patients so that we can really target good quality outcomes. And I can give three or four other examples of similar type of work, but that's that's foundational um, and, and really powerful. So UNC Health Alliance is a, is a physician-led uh, organization and integrated network, and, and we're committed to that. Um, we really do fundamentally believe that um, physicians in our state know how to uh, care for patients, especially those with complex medical and psychosocial conditions. But what they need are the resources to be able to do that well and to coordinate care. And so it's really, it is really important for us to be physician-led. Our hospitals are integral and important partners, to be sure, and partnering with our physicians in our hospitals, the financial leaders across our system, and the administrative leaders across our system uh, is really important. And what we've what we've seen is that as we start to see success in value, those conversations are a whole lot easier, especially with our financial leaders, to start to build out the the value business across the hospitals. And one one way we've realized that uh, is through Blue Premier. Um, as you likely know, there are um, the the quality outcomes of our hospitals impacts the performance within Blue Premier directly. So we've been able to engage our hospital leaders because of that differently than we've been able to before. But we've also found opportunities within our our acute care around specific procedures, for example, specific conditions, um, whether it's CHF uh, and and post-discharge care, and whether it's CHF and uh, enhancing discharge care uh, with adequate coordinated care in our skilled nursing facilities and in our, our cardiology clinics coordinated in that care, we're starting to see, or our hospitals are starting to see the value in, in improving coordinated care across the continuum. Uh, and that's been a real benefit. So quite honestly, I know that we've, we have historic data that show physician-led ACOs in general perform better than hospital-led ACOs, What I've really started to say is that our integrated healthcare systems are likely the best position to reduce unnecessary utilization, to really address total cost of care, uh, because we have providers across the continuum that can start to coordinate care better. Um, And I think that's the future. I think we are really well positioned. So we are physician-led, we have strong hospital partners, and our mission remains the same. What I can say is this may be easier within UNC Health. Because we are a statewide healthcare system and our mission is to improve the health and well being of North Carolinians. We have a strong interest in addressing concerns in, in our rural counties. We have a robust and well established primary care network um, that has been nationally recognized for many years. So we have the basic infrastructure, the basic ingredients to do value based care really well. So pairing our provider led, physician led network. With our hospitals who share a common mission, makes this work doable.
0: Mark, I love the reference to the mission, and you know we've talked about the system providing high quality care to all your patients, and and you've talked about how that a lot of that focuses on those most vulnerable to poor outcomes. And I've seen in your background also that you've been an advocate in the patient centered medical home movement, and a big part of that being patient centered is figuring out how to bring in the patient voice into the primary care setting. And a few years ago, you published a case study where you discussed implementation of a patient advisory council and how that was incorporated into the governance of your practice at UNC Family Medicine Center. Can you explain how this patient advisory council and and other patient-centered initiatives that you've led have really brought about a model of whole person care that improved outcomes and especially those that are most vulnerable and often don't have a voice?
1: Thank you, Daniel, for, for asking that question. That was a truly enjoyable um, experience and, and quite honestly taught me a lot, not just as a, as a physician, but as a, a leader and, and as a community member. We have to listen to our patients and how they experience the care that we provide. And it was, it was, it was quite a journey. We started the Patient Advisory Council primarily as a way to improve our communication. So this was a learning moment for me. We had conceived of the group mostly as a patient focus group that we could bring ideas to and really get perspective. And it quickly became apparent that we had the right patients at the table uh, because they wanted more than that. They didn't want to just be a focus group. They wanted to help drive new initiatives. They wanted to help in guiding how we administered care in, in a large primary care clinic. And this was a large um, a large clinic. We had about 20,000 patients, 65,000 visits per year. So it was really quite busy. And the, the advisory group um, started getting involved in our communication strategy. I'll, I'll never forget one of our advisors as we were describing our response time to patient messages. And we were really proud of the fact that we got that response time down to 48 uh, hours, so two days. And he just looked me square in the eye and said, that is simply unacceptable. <laughs> and we were really proud of that. And he said, every other industry responds to their customer patient needs much more timely. Why is it that you guys are two decades behind everyone else? And it was a really important moment for me to start to reassess some of our our core beliefs, um, what we thought we were doing well, and quite honestly, what many of our patients just didn't tell us uh, or we didn't capture well enough in our routine uh, patient experience surveys. We involved the Patient Advisory Council in renovating the entire clinic. Uh, we had patient, we had some of our advisors walk with pedometers to see how long does it take to get from our waiting room to an exam room? How much time are they spending doing that? What does it look like and feel like to sit in our waiting room or to interface with our medical assistant? What questions are we asking um, that may be interpreted differently by different patients? Um, And we really redesigned the entire, not just the physical layout of the clinic, but the processes within the clinic before patients came to clinic, and then all of our interface with patients after a clinic visit and how that all worked, the, the entire flow of care delivery. It taught me many things, including how important it was to really look through the eyes of our patients and how they experience care. It was also pretty apparent pretty quickly that we were only getting one slice of the broad patient perspective. And so we started looking for more diverse perspectives from our patients. And that's when we started looking at disparities in outcomes. Uh, We ran some focus groups uh, that among many of the findings uh, it was interesting to hear, and our patients were telling us that they receive information um, and trust what they're hearing from providers uh, who look like them and talk like them. And that, you know, that's we've known that for for many years, uh, but to have your own patient tell you that is really interesting. And that really led us to start looking at how to leverage trusted community uh, leaders, community agencies, um, how to provide group-type care in different settings. Uh, that might be outside the four walls of the clinic, for example. So there were many, many learnings uh, from engaging patients directly. You know really interestingly, our uh, one of my board members right now uh, is one of the patients who was on that original advisory council. So uh, we've we've been in touch for quite a while, and he continues to provide perspective for me um, on uh, leading and managing a large network of providers. It's been um, it's, an, it's been a, a profound uh, experience for me over time has also translated into broader engagement with patients, again, outside of our typical patient experience surveys, to start to look at what are some of the demographic differences in how patients um, experience or are willing to engage in virtual care. We've seen some pretty significant changes in engagement levels across uh, demographic uh, groups recently, what patient needs are in our geography, by geography, Uh, how they experience access to primary care versus specialty care, et cetera. So we're really looking at um, patient-level marketing data differently and better than we have in the past and trying to react to it uh, more proactively.
2: This concept of empowering the patient and giving them a voice to influence and direct their own care is so important in value-based care. Mark, as we wrap up our conversation today, I thought it would be good to also talk about the voice of the primary care physician. What I mean by that is this concept of the quadruple aim, where we consider how a physician should be able to feel joy in his or her work. I recently read Robert Pearl's book, Mistreated, and he talked about how physicians can feel relatively powerless when it comes to the tsunami of new requirements coming from regulators and having to call insurance companies for permission to do what they know is best for the patients. And he talked about how that can lead to a siege mentality. In particularly uh, primary care, doctors feel stretched beyond their capacity. There was even a study that came out a few years ago, and it said that if a primary care physician spent absolutely the amount of time that it was necessary in the day to take care of everything with regard to seeing patients and completing documentation, it would take 21.7 hours per day doing all of that primary care physicians consequently often feel devalued and marginalized by the system and they feel disempowered as a physician executive leading a CIN and ACO with 1100 primary care providers and 4,100 specialty providers. How do you ensure that the physicians you are leading are feeling a joy in their work so they can better connect with that altruistic purpose of why they entered into medicine in the first place? Does value-based care, offer the promise for providers to feel more satisfied with their professions so they can better care for patients?
1: How our primary care doctors have experienced the changes in in the healthcare landscape has been profound and continues to to change routinely. And all of the points that you just made, Eric, are are really important. Um, You know, I fundamentally believe that Primary care is the foundation of our healthcare system. It's the front door to the system uh, that our patients uh, experience. Having access to high quality primary care, we know, uh, can enhance health outcomes over the long term. Uh, long term continuity relationships are really important. Uh, there's good data that even if a patient can identify a doctor as their primary care doctor, they have better outcomes than patients who can't identify uh, their primary care doctor. Relationships matter. Long-term relationships matter, and our doctors have have really felt the onslaught of increasing administrative burden over time. To your point, most of our primary care doctors are truly invested uh, in their patients, in their communities, and will do what it takes to ensure that their patients have the care that they need. And I really see. The movement toward value, organizations like integrated networks and ACOs, and more broadly healthcare systems. Uh, one of our most important jobs is to ensure that our providers can, on the front line, can focus on on their patients' needs, and we can try and really relieve as much of the non-essential burden as possible. To your example, issues like getting prior authorization for procedures, you know, we understand why that's important to some extent. We can start to look at providers where specific procedures are never rejected by a prior authorization process. And if that's the case, perhaps they don't need prior authorization anymore. As we transition more into value-based payment models, it's increasingly important for uh, me as a leader of our network and our providers to manage risk um, ourselves. Uh, And therefore, we start to look at utilization patterns and potentially high-value and low-value care very differently. And that really does have the promise of reducing some administrative burden on, on our frontline providers. Some of the core services that organizations like mine can provide around data, around care management and clinical pharmacy and enhanced primary care teams. As you mentioned earlier, no primary care provider has 21 hours in a day to dedicate to their patients but a primary care team collectively does. Um, And we can start to identify where the right care is uh, among that team. Uh, And our certified medical assistants can uh, perform new and different types of care delivery. Uh, Clinical pharmacists as additional team members are really important. Centralized processes of gathering uh, medical records from previous providers uh, so that we know when that last colonoscopy was are important. So as we wrap um, more services and an extended team around our frontline providers, we can allay some of that burden on our frontline providers. Now, all of that being said, primary care providers are will still struggle. As I mentioned before, I'm a family physician and um, I know that my patients have more needs than, than I can individually provide and that my team can uh, provide. So it also becomes increasingly important for us to engage with uh, community partners um, and community agencies that can start to address some of the key social drivers of health. It is, throughout my career, it's been frustrating for me to know that my patient doesn't have enough food. They're not that worried about their diabetes, they're more worried about finding adequate food. Um, And the more that I can find a solution for that, the better off my patients will be, and quite honestly, the better I'll feel as, a, as their doctor, that I'm truly addressing what their real needs are. That's, I think, the, the future of, of value-based care or the promise of the future of value-based care uh, is allowing our doctors to provide the comprehensive care that they know they want to provide and sometimes can't because of, of lack of resources. So I think the future is bright. I think that many ACOs, clinically integrated networks, and healthcare systems are realizing the core central value of primary care and really good, high-quality, high-performing primary care, and that's very reassuring.
2: Indeed, Mark, I do think the future is bright, and I just can't thank you enough for joining us today and sharing insights on how you're leading a revolution in value-based care. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Eric. It, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure for me as well, and I really appreciate uh, you and and the organization that you're leading and the good work uh, that you're doing now and into the future.
0: Mark, I've enjoyed speaking with you as well, and and just one final question for you as we as we end today. Where can people find out more about UNC Health Alliance and UNC Senior Alliance? Oh, Daniel, that's a great question.
1: I encourage folks to. Uh, look at our website and, and feel free to reach out to us. They're, they're, uh, within our website is an embedded email. We are happy to talk with folks uh, who are doing like work and want to know more about what we're doing. We're also happy uh, to learn from other systems and, and we fundamentally believe that as all of us do this work better, uh, we'll improve um, healthcare across America. Uh, and we we believe in learning organizations and and learning from each other so we welcome the opportunity to have conversations with like-minded folks across the country i've done a couple of podcasts and and i have to say guys this was um this was really professionally done so uh, kudos really well done
0: well thank you so much mark really appreciate it